Hello, and welcome once again to This Week in the Ancient Near East, the podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. With me, once again, are two academics from real institutions, Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee and Professor Rachel Hallett of the State University of New York at Purchase. We're coming to you from the rooftop solarium at the Walter Benjamin Institute for the Study of Reality and Its Discontents, here on the beautiful Hoople campus. Today we're talking about the puzzling story of a tiny Iron Age papyrus that has traveled from Jerusalem to Montana and back, which is about all that we can say for sure. The inscription contains the words, Send to Ishmael, or possibly Don't Send to Ishmael, and, if real, would be one of a tiny handful of inscriptions on papyrus from the Iron Age. But is the object real? The papyrus itself is old, but what about the ink? Is this a real object that was mysteriously gifted to a Montana woman by a museum employee in the 1950s? Or is there a disgruntled grad student somewhere putting one over on all of us? And if it is a fake, who is accountable? Who can we trust? What is real anyway? You knew I was going to say that. Okay. Um, shall we do a lightning round? Let's do a lightning round. I have no idea what you could possibly ask. I was trying to think. I always forget that. that there's going to be a lightning round, so I'm never really prepared. <laughs> That's the beauty of the lightning round. <laughs> it's the beauty of my tiny cranial capacity. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a synergy, I guess. Um, I mean, it's sort of apropos, but it's not 100% apropos. Um, what's the oldest book in your house? Ooh. Oh, man. Good question. Oldest book. Hmm. I think I have some 19th century copies of Traveler's Accounts to Palestine, late 19th century. You would. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> listen, listen, you. You've got a, a library that literally could cause your third fall third floor to collapse so uh <laughs> cause the collapse of something yeah i don't i don't think i have anything particularly old i'm sure i have something from the early 20th century maybe something from the late 19th maybe a journal a singular issue of a journal floating around but mm. anything too antiquarian. Okay. So you're not a hoarder. Uh, well, those books for you, Rachel, are part of your sort of research library. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But my, the earliest site reports I have, I think are early 20. I don't think I have anything. I mean, I might have reproductions of late. I think I might have some late 19th century thing from Jerusalem. Okay. But, miscellanies yeah um but, you know there's a lot of reproductions mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. late 19th century stuff no, reproductions I, I have, 
<laughs> what? Reproductions. I'm going to write that down. That, that, that'll get us somewhere, right? Yeah. I might have one of those, uh, you know, EES volumes. Oh, yeah. From, you know, the, the copies there or, or the real ones? No, no, the, the originals. Yeah, like a Bidos or something. Yeah, exactly. And we all had hots for those Petri Boy, books back then. What in a the day. moldering mass of decomposing paper that's become. <laughs> oh, yeah. man. It's right, turned, it was a very worthwhile investment. No antiquarian book dealer is the least bit interested at this point. Are there? I don't think there are any antiquarian book dealers anymore. Not in our field. No, no, I think you're right. All right, let's roll right. out the big gun. What about I'll me? Put, yeah, yeah. Um, you're what are you, we're oh. all waiting because I know you're going to say, yes, I have a 17th century, <laughs> you know. Um, well, there is, a, there, there is a bunch of 19th century stuff. Like, like there's a copy of the survey of Eastern Palestine. Well, that's very cool. Yeah. Um, you know, because when, when these guys finished surveying Western Palestine, they're like, okay, what are we going to do now? Let's go survey <laughs> the other side. Um, there's, a, there's a whole story there, you know, about yeah. Americans versus British. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I don't want yeah. to hear that story. I know you don't. But the <laughs> oldest involved, book in the house. Is it in a harbor? Right? Yeah. Well, probably. <laughs> we will not let this stand. <laughs> <laughs> um our neighbor across the street uh passed away and he was it's a long story he had a house full of books and his kids said take whatever you want so i took a bunch of stuff like 10 boxes worth nobody oh. wanted it but i kept the oldest stuff and the oldest the oldest oldest i think was printed in amsterdam in like 1701 and the amazing thing is that nobody wants this stuff. Why yeah. is that amazing? Um, because I don't know. I thought that old, old, old things are intrinsically interesting and valuable, but I was wrong. Very select. Yeah. 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 It, yeah. It's very select. Nobody, nobody is buying French poetry books <laughs> printed in Amsterdam from 18, uh, yeah. 1701 or anything. Now. Yeah. Um, and you know, so so it was kind of a shame. I had to get rid of a lot of stuff. And you uh, give it to. Nobody wants this stuff. You give it to the public library and you know secretly that they're gonna shred it, but you just don't see them doing it, so it feels okay. Right. But it sort of kind of relates to uh the topic du jour, don't you think? Sort of kinda. Sort kinda. of kinda. Yeah. what gets preserved. What doesn't get preserved, what gets um, valued and brought into the into the go-go world of the 21st century, <laughs> well, only to be only to be shredded at some point in the 21st century. Well, the 21st century uh, shreds us all, I think. Yeah, <laughs> one one way or another. So, is that a good setup? Yeah, That's someone has setup. to introduce the uh, the artifact du jour. Who's going to introduce it? Oh, well, I'll, I'll start. Okay. Um, you know, it was all, it was all in the news, even for those of us who kind of live under a rock that a, a tiny piece of a papyrus had been returned apparently from, from Montana to Jerusalem and it seems to be a first temple period papyrus on which the word, among other things, Ishmael <laughs> is, 
is written. So if if this is real, if it's not real, what is real anyway? It, <laughs> there's only of- a teeny, teeny, tiny corpus of um, papyri from the first temple period, from about the 8th century-ish BCE. And maybe, maybe this is one of them. First, or maybe can, not. Can we, do we have to say first temple period? We can't call it the Iron II or the Iron II? Yeah. I think we should call it the Iron II. Uh, the Iron, what would, uh, that would be the Iron II B? No, C. C? We could say seventh or sixth century, probably, I, maybe. Whatever. Um. Okay. And 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 the the story the story seems to be that uh, a oh. woman a woman was visiting Jerusalem in the late in the late 1950s early 1960s she visited um, the famous antiquities dealer in Jerusalem Kando. Well, no, and, hold it, hold it. You're getting way ahead, and you're oh, okay. finding it. You don't, <laughs> you don't know any such stuff. Well, you know no, that. that's the story. Well, we don't even know. That's not even the story. What the is the story? You either purchased or was gifted right. this little smidgen of a papyrus right. and uh, from the director, from the curator of the Palestine Archaeological Museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe the um, antiquities dealer condo from Bethlehem was involved. That's a big right. maybe. And no one know. And she has, there's no paperwork associated with it. So we don't really know. Well, there's some paperwork associated with it because they were able to trace it to this woman and her estate in Montana. Well, that's another big, <laughs> that's another big empty, empty box that <laughs> deserves a little bit of, you know, stuff in it. Fair enough. We're never going to get that story because that story is all bound up in the antiquities market and in dealers and you know attribution and blah 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 i i actually i wonder if that's actually the easiest part of the story for us to get because when it first came to light a few years ago it was because of um an archaeologist and epigrapher going through the material of a recently deceased um scholar who had a picture of it um from before it made its way to Montana. And from there, they were contacting the Israel Antiquities Authority Theft Department. They were able to have enough paperwork, although I don't know what, to figure out that in Montana. I don't think there was paperwork. I think it was all word of mouth in the, you know, in that sort of sub sub basement of the antiquities market and the IAA uh, theft unit. The other thing is that I found very interesting was that the scholar who was purportedly working on it, no one seemed to know anything about this. No one seemed to know or say publicly for however long the scholar was working on it that, oh, there's a fragment of a of an iron 2C uh, papyrus with the word with the name Ishmael on it. So this this really kind of hit the, you know, it 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 was pretty mysterious and under the table and then it all of a sudden was wasn't right right so so oh. flash forward to the last couple of years and there's this back and forth between the woman's son and the Israel Antiquities Authority and one of the Antiquities Authority guys goes to Montana and takes a look and then 
and says, this is great. It would be great to have this back in Jerusalem. And then the son of the guy comes to Jerusalem, the son of the woman comes to Jerusalem with the thing and turns it over to the Antiquities Authority. Um, well, the, the details there, there we get a little bit of resolution, higher resolution. Right. Yeah. And that he was invited over and was so impressed with the IAA's, you know, uh, laboratories. Yeah. And ability to preserve it and the importance of the of the of the inscription that he then came to realize that you know this was the the best thing to do but right. you know that's also a lot of empty space a lot of lacunas in there all right we need to back up just for a second okay <laughs> <laughs> for for our listeners sake or our, our listener who might be listening sake. how far do you want to back up i just want to back up to say that the whole reason that we're talking about this that there's so many press reports is everybody is all excited that ooh this uh iron age papyrus fragment has turned up and they they a lot of people believe it is authentic but what we have been getting at for the last five minutes is the fact that not everybody believes it's authentic. And what we're talking about is this provenance trail that we can't quite put our finger on carefully um, from where, where it was originally found. That we will never know, probably. But um, I don't know. I was, until now, perfectly happy from the trail from 1965 <laughs> until today. <laughs> it's just but, this big... but thank you for, uh, you it's... know. I'm, yeah. I'm... Yeah, it's a big void. It goes through a black hole. Yep. It seems to start in Jerusalem. It goes through a black hole. It seems to end up in Montana, and now it's back. That's right. that's yeah. the short version, right? It seems to be a um, the the papyrus itself has been radiocarbon dated, and the papyrus itself dates to seventh sixth century. But the question is. Um, it could still be a forgery. It could still be a modern forger writing on an old piece of papyrus. Right. So maybe we should describe the fragment to begin with. That's a very good idea. It's, it's, very, like, this, it's like this big. It's very small. <laughs> if you can right. see my fingers out there in radio land. It's talking about centimeters and it has four lines and the most, um, <coughs> the most prominent word is the name Ishmael. Yeah. So and I think Melville did it. You think what? Oh, Melville. <laughs> I think that Melville, uh, that this is a forgery that can be attributed to a, to a Melville cultist. <laughs> I think I think that's entirely likely. Um, and what what does it actually say alongside the name Ishmael? So there are four lines. Only about a line has been released in these press reports. I suppose the rest is too difficult to read. And I've read and heard two things now. One, it says, um, it says um, to Ishmael, send blah blah blah. But then I heard an interview with one of the people involved, the one, the person who's publishing it, who is quoted or who says in his interview that it says, "Don't send to Ishmael." <laughs> send, don't send. <laughs> Send it, but not to Ishmael. So <laughs> somebody is telling again. somebody else to either send something to Ishmael or absolutely not to send something to Ishmael. Well, let's hope that they knew what they were talking about. Yeah. Um, back back then. So, so, so the most noteworthy thing, as we've already noted, is that there are very few papyrus fragments that reliably date to the Iron Age too, uh, and this being 
the second, maybe the third. Maybe the third. Yeah. But I think we're saying the second because I think we're assuming that one of those other two really has been debunked as a forgery. Well, yes. And well, say which ones they are. So the one that's been debunked as a forgery, I believe, is the Jerusalem one, the one that's called the Jerusalem Papyrus. Yep. What's the name of the other one? <laughs> um, uh, from the Wadi uh, Marabat. Okay. And that one, I guess, seems to be legitimate. In one of the articles, they resurrect a known forgery, the uh, Marzeach papyrus. And I was surprised to see that. Right. Because uh, that one has been very much debunked as a complete and total forgery. Right. So it just shows you how, you know, slippery this stuff is that the press really wants to, you know, make a big deal uh, whenever possible about something, anything that relates to the first temple or the right. Iron Age too, um, in general, and how they're even willing to trot out old canards, uh, mm -hmm. knowing that, you know, specialists uh, reject something like the Marseille papyrus, but that a popular audience will have no idea and thus think that it's legitimate. Right. And I think that that's and, an important kind of part of all of this. First Temple, let's publish it. First Temple, let's make a big deal about it. Let's make a big splash about it. Um, right. Yeah. Um, the, along those lines, what really irritated me in all the press reports is the the tying it to the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the reason I think that happened is because the Dead Sea Scrolls project has a great lab for dealing with ancient papyri. But this is not a Dead Sea Scrolls fragment. It has nothing to do with the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's 500 whatever years before, more than 500 years earlier than the Dead Sea Scrolls. It could come from the Dead Sea. You don't know. Well, it could I come from know. the Dead Sea. But I think what Rachel is accurately saying is that when you say Dead Sea Scrolls, we have a whole you know set of connotations that are deeply yeah, embedded okay, and well in place. Everybody thinks that when you, when you say Dead Sea Scrolls, everyone says, oh, it's legit. It's right. completely, you know. Although it's it it is worth noting that when the Dead Sea Scrolls were first uh, rumored and then unveiled yeah. in the end of the 1940s and into the 1950s, there were legitimate scholars who thought that these things were fake. That's right. correct. Fake, fake, fake. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and okay, Poirot. <laughs> and and this is a you know this is a a kind of reflex that has only gotten more um <laughs> reflexive pronounced in, pronounced in yeah. in recent decades partly because there are so many damn fakes right but but right. partly because people um i think just they don't want to they don't want to believe so um well i read something so I, I, no, I, I read something the other day okay. that said that the the Mesha steely mm -hmm. is a is a fake I'm like okay i don't right. <laughs> that's a that's a minority view there are people we know people who still we know people we know the people who found the tell don steely um i don't think that that's a fake no but people said it was a fake from the beginning and so there's still people who do yeah yeah um, I like the implications i think both sides of the uh, spectrum are are well represented those that believe things are absolutely authentic and those that believe things are absolutely fake yeah. Um, yeah and i think oftentimes those ends of the spectrum are not being particularly um 
careful in their uh, analysis and use of these artifacts for one agenda or another. Right. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, there are people who just want to eliminate all of all of the the, the texts. The well, yes, but let's in but, in, a, in a sense. But those people have been discredited for a long time, and right. and really, let's not. I mean, let's. Not, it doesn't. It's not even worth bringing attention to them because we have no truck with them. Well, mm -hmm. also because they don't really exist in a real way anymore. I, I mean, they, they produce scholarship that nobody reads and nobody uses. So they're sort of in a you know a little weird little time capsule, but like, well, okay, but that in a sense describes a lot of <laughs> all right a lot of that nobody reads and nobody uses. Right? <laughs> Fair enough, but you you know exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. So I don't think we need to, you know. Okay, but uh, but yes, there are some people who uh, you know think that this is well. Clearly, the Israel Antiquities Authority has come out. Uh, uh, and said it's authentic, right? And based right. on the radiocarbon dating and based on the paleography of the script itself. Yeah. And uh, one of our our good colleagues and uh, good friends, and here we will, I think, mention his name because he is a prominent scholar who uh, really devotes a great deal of his time and energy to uh, to sussing out authenticity. He's Mister Authenticity. Yeah, mm -hmm. so we're talking about Chris Ralston, and uh, and and Chris is uh, often brought in on these cases and often sees stuff in the in the black market well before it hits any kind of uh, public venue. Right. Uh, Chris has uh, just pointed out a number of um, issues with that might that should be uh, of of some concern regarding <laughs> chris has issues <laughs> with, with the with the papyrus in yeah so does someone want to cover what those some of the more important of those issues are i'll do it because i made a list based on what chris Good. wrote all so, right um while the papyrus has been um uh radiocarbon dated nobody has said anything about the chemical composition of the ink of the papyrus so that's problem number one. Does it contain something that was not available, not used in the Iron Age? Um, nobody has talked about the patina um, of the papyrus. Is there over over time, over thousands of years, um, sort of a, a sheen develops over things? So no one has examined um, this papyrus's patina um, or the patina on the actual letters of the ink, I guess. Um, there is no receipt, apparently, from the Montana guy. Um, maybe there wasn't a receipt at all. This I was unclear of, but regardless, he does not have a receipt. Granted, his mother bought it 50 years ago, but he doesn't have the receipt. Um, some letters don't conform to what is stylistically common at the time, which could be an indication of sloppy writing, quick writing, or it could be an indication of forgery. And then he also says something that we've we just said that um, that we don't know where this comes from. So th it, we, this assumption tied to maybe the Dead Sea Scrolls laboratory, it doesn't have to come from the Judean desert, and that's people are kind of making the assumption that it does. It has to come from someplace dry. It has right. to come from someplace dry, but we really don't know. It could have been from a tomb. Who knows? So. 
Right. I mean, there is the issue of if it isn't from the de the Judean desert, then where is it from? Right. Um, so that's sort of why that in assumption that it's related, or at least it's found in the Judean desert, is is part of the whole package. Yeah. Um, what um, what of those what of those uh, issues do you find most compelling, Rachel? Um, well, I find a lot of them compelling. I would like to know. I would like to know the answer to the chemical composition of the ink. I um, it wasn't made with like a flare <laughs> or, or a pilot. A pilot. A pilot. Yeah. Yeah. Or um, you know, I, Crayola. Right. I would like to know that, but but um, this leads me. I don't know. I was hesitating about saying this, but oh, I'll just I'll just go for it. Um, uh, you know, foragers are doing such a good job these days. <laughs> They're aware of patina issues. We've They're got a better class of foragers these days than ever before. Exactly. Well, we yeah. This, I mean, the thing, technology. These are, but these foragers are also, you know, are they coming through PhD programs? They really need to know the details <laughs> of this. No, that's that's Whoa. what I'm hesitating about saying it, right? But um, they're being trained in. All not just the chemical stuff, but the paleography. You know, you don't just pick this kind of stuff up on your own. Unless um, it's a team. What? Unless it's a team like card counters. Oh. It's okay. like a team of people. Right. So then there are still academics involved, um, perhaps unwittingly, let's let's say, but I, I don't know. I mean how deep does this go? <laughs> We're ripping the top off of this. Who are we training in our PhD programs? I, I just think it's something that that you know, Chris's really good questions made me made me think of, and, and that and that was one of the suspicions with um, the the ossuary case, right, from mm -hmm. a few years ago that there that there really was a disgruntled graduate student or graduate trained individual behind it all. And there was a story about an Egyptian craftsman who had been installed on the roof of an apartment building in Tel Aviv to turn these things out according to the specs right. that this uh, this guy who wanted to put one over on on the academic world for for whatever reason. And certainly, we, certainly we've we've seen that kind of syndrome from time to time where. Disgruntled academics? I've yeah. never seen a disgruntled <laughs> academic. Right. These they're only disgruntled people on planet Earth. Right. They're they're the most centered and pacific group of people. Gruntled, you might say, <laughs> not disgruntled. Right. That's what I just said. And um right. Um yeah, but I think the basic thing is where there's a where there's interest, there's a market, and where there's a market, the you know the mechanisms come into play to 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 feed that market. Yeah, there's always someone out there one step ahead gaming the gaming the the system. Right and about that is there's little doubt. Well, and what what do both of you find compelling about Chris's um, list? Well, certainly the ink. Even though Chris does note that ink can also be you know manufactured to meet the specifications of, you know, antiquarian ink. Right. Um, he make uh, Chris does a really good job of teasing out all the potential pitfalls of the authenticity of this artifact, and uh, like you, I think that it's the totality of all of those um, threads that bring it into question. The thing that I'm most curious about is the very um, strong position of the IAA, as if to say they know something. That's and, interesting, and that's what I'm most curious about. 
I'm most curious about the fact that there was a, a legitimate bona fide scholar working on this and that it sort of working on it, if not in secret, everybody, no one was saying anything about it. And I find that a little bit hard to believe that no one would say, oh, yes, there's a, you know, uh, there's a papyrus mm. that's, you know, that we think is authentic and legitimate and a good scholar is working on it and we're all waiting for his or her results. So that never happened. And the IAA comes out very strongly in the authenticity camp. So I think that they know, I think that there's more known about this mm -hmm. than we, than they're publicizing. And I think that it would be good to know. I don't know. There's just, it's just strange that the, I think it's, I find it strange that the IA is so, you know, positive that it's authentic, even though there are all these problems with right. it. Chris yeah. Pointed out. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's a very good point too. And everybody doesn't want to be caught out because scholars have been caught out in recent years and decades with publishing something before all the authenticity checks were done and they've been embarrassed. So the IA probably wouldn't be making this announcement unless they were pretty darn sure. Exactly. Yeah. Well, so, you'd, you'd, you'd like to think that. You'd like to think that. Um, I know, you know, Harvard University's <laughs> seem to be pretty sure about that whole Jesus's wife, wife gospel yeah. thing. And that, that went sideways <laughs> pretty, pretty badly, but you know, everybody and everybody had egg on their face, but uh, they picked themselves up and dusted themselves off. Right. And, that's true. And, and life goes on and there the stakes in, in a very real sense were much, much higher about, you know the the origins of christianity and all here it's just maybe maybe a name that's uh you know well, being it, being attested yeah, so so hard. maybe that maybe that's uh, that's the hint, a hint that this is that this is fake or is that that it's real that it, that it aims low it doesn't revise the the <laughs> early early history of of the judean okay. uh, of judea uh, or judah and israel or it just it's just good enough to get in at the at the ground level, make somebody some money, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I that's, don't know. That's, that's a good point. I think the I think the money, you know, always follow the money, right? We don't know. Who <laughs> we don't know whether there was any money. Well, no, we don't know who might be willing to make a big donation to whom, based on oh wow, there's all this stuff that's still being found, and you know maybe you've got to get into the heads of these people and crawl around for a while. You got to get into their development departments and see who um, would be potentially interested in helping to finance, you know, private donations to to whatever labs. I don't oh, know. whoa, whoa, whoa. We don't want to go. I know. I don't want to go. I, I just want to point out that there's always a deeper financial motive. I, I want to bring out one materials. That's the issue that, um, Alex, you sort of uh, raised in a slightly oblique way, which is accountability. And um, ultimately, there's really no accountability. You know, the Jerusalem papyrus came out and it was published. And most people think it's a fake. And ubla di ubla da, life goes on. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know the uh, the the James ossuary that was a like you said that was a whole big thing for a long time. Yeah. And I you know I, along with the along with the tablet, 
right along with oh, the Yoash okay. tablet. And I don't exactly. I think some people did go to prison, right? If I'm not no, sure. nobody went to prison. Oh, no, there was a long, there was, there a, was long, a long, long court case, right? And, right. The, and no the court, went... after you know, 15 years of of hearing testimony and deliberation, however right. long, it so was, no one went to prison. Said basically, if you guys can't really prove it, we can't right. prove it. No, no harm, no foul. And they gave all the stuff back to the guy who owned it. Okay, and so... they said, you know, <laughs> so what? Right. So at a, at a certain legal level, it's it was formally unproven. Mm -hmm. So so the level so that that like every and this is just, I think, reflective of all of society, everything that's going on in in sort of, you know, contemporary society is that there's no accountability, that everything happens so fast and mm -hmm. that everything happens, you know, in such a huge forceful tsunami of information that just gets, you know, the fire hose effect and, right. and without any accountability. So this stuff is just, you know, maybe in three well, or four but, years. But what that. would accountability look like? Uh, what would accountability Pub look public like? Public flogging? No. <laughs> well, that, you know, people who, well, look, we don't want to put too fine a point on this, but accountability would look like if, if uh if it is authentic then then it's then that's fine then there's no issues or no problems but if it's not authentic and uh then there should be you know the kinds of things that it, it institutions do to people who you know haven't done their um due diligence i think this brings us to a slightly different direction i want to go in which is um I don't know that everybody understands outside of scholars how important provenance really is and and why do we care <laughs> why do we care if it's real because if we don't know where it comes even if it's real so let's make the assumption for a moment that it's real right. for from an archaeological point of view it really matters whether it comes from a tomb within Jerusalem whether it comes from a cave in the Judean desert whether it comes from a tomb outside of Jerusalem, you know, you can learn a lot about uh, an artifact, any artifact, whether it has writing on it or not, uh, based on, you know, is it in right, a- but you don't have that luxury here. Well, no, that's what I'm saying. I'm trying to explain why it's important to know where it comes from, not just that it's real, but where it comes from, assuming it is real. That's an important point that, you know, I think we know, but not everybody knows. Yeah, yeah that but, is a very important point. Uh, and that's why I think there's, you know, there's a lot of open-ended issues with this. Yeah. Right, so, so do we put every inscriptional artifact that doesn't have, you know, actual videotape of it coming out of the ground into a suspect category? Well, hold yes. on. Let's stop. Let's stop. Let's step back. Let's not say ugh, it doesn't <laughs> have to have video. I mean, you didn't have to add that. It doesn't have to have video. <laughs> It's just if it was found in excavation or if it was obtained in some kind of way. In... Well, no, no, but that's a that, that's an important I, I think the, the level of of uh, documentation is an important point because this was one of precisely one of the, the challenges to the tell Don Steely. Right. But that, the, okay, everyone it, acknowledged that came out of excavation. You don't need a video. And right. well, but there are people who who don't acknowledge that. Right, but they're again they you're, again. That's a straw man's argument. Those people are no longer uh, their perspective. <laughs> they're dead to us. <laughs> in their perspective and viewpoint, it has no long ha, no longer has any 
uh, place in in the academy. So right. wh what's the point of? I mean, you're you know. But, but it is it is important to acknowledge that one of the one of the things about field archaeology is very precise documentation. Right. photographic and written documentation. And here's what I tell my undergraduates every day, and I'm going to tell them again tomorrow, that archaeology is destruction. Because once you lift it out and take it apart to find out what's underneath, whatever it is, it's gone. And that's why you have to record it so precisely. So I think we should all agree, without video documentation, <laughs> that if well, it comes from a good, clean archaeological context... But but, but if, it, if, it was so, if it was something that was excavated in the 19th century i'm okay with that I trust or them. or the first half of the 20th century i trust them too <laughs> well it comes down you see but this is what it does this is the issue it comes down to it comes down to to trust and and let nested levels of trust going all the way up to, to right, but, the but present now but now that there's a certain degree of nihilism in that <laughs> you know i'm, I'm nothing point, if not nihilistic that's why he wants well, the video exactly. so what's the point right so what's the so the 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 forgeries that came out in the 19th and early 20th century was for a very specific target audience museums yeah, yeah. right they just wanted to get this stuff in museums and they wanted to get paid for it and right. there was a there was a whole industry devoted to that so if something is found in an, in an excavation and it's published in a late 19th century or early 20th century report then and you know then it's unlikely that um i think it's unlikely that it was forged most right. of the forgeries don't even begin to have that kind of pedigree in that time period so you know i think unless you want to deconstruct everything and just rip everything up i don't think that that's a necessarily there problem. was a there was a a thing last year <laughs> oh man um about the shapiro scrolls right, right, right. i was gonna say now there you know this is uh this is not my department at all in terms of <laughs> no in terms of evaluating the right the, the language um in the first instance and the, the the circumstances of the discovery and and uh, marketing of these leather scrolls that had the apparently a variant book of deuteronomy or whatever yeah right um but there my point only being that there is a small group of reputable people, otherwise reputable people, um, who believe that these things are real, right? Or were exactly. real, and now that and now they're gone, and there's all they, and, and they're very much more problematic than than almost anything else. But right, because but, they but don't the exist other, anymore. Right, right. But, right. but right. the other the other thing about them is, had those things been found post discovery of Dead Sea Scrolls, they may still have been called inauthentic in the end, but they would have been examined in a really, really different light because people had the idea after the Dead Sea Scrolls that such things can exist. Right. And back in the 19th century, they it was unique. So, you know, again, it may still have been declared inauthentic, but we'll never know. Right. Um, and now that they, the Shapiro uh, stuff doesn't exist, all of these kinds of arguments are really very, very both abstract and you know, yeah, in a very small audience in a very small group. That's um, true. um but uh, go ahead. Sorry. No, that was all. I well, I, I want to know whether this whether this discovery changes anything uh, okay. substantively about our understanding of the Iron Two C 
period and its administration or, or whether the, the Jerusalem papyrus, whether it's real or whether it's fake changed anything um, or whether these are just a small kind of data points that can be disregarded uh, if, if one chooses to, because inevitably they have an asterisk mm-hmm. connected to them. I think the reason that it would be exciting if it's real is because it's just more proof that there really was a whole lot of written documentation from that period that we just don't have. And this I also got from reading Chris Ralston's piece, but it should have been, well, it should have been obvious to me, but it wasn't, which is, you know, we have so many bullies, so many stamp seals from this period, and they were sealing documents with them. And we don't have the documents because the documents are perishable. So the the stamp seals themselves are really proof that, yeah, they were writing a whole lot on something perishable. So it's kind of nice if a piece of the perishable stuff does turn up. And we also have, um, I think it was the Jerusalem Post article, or maybe it was the Biblical Archaeology Review article, uh, pointing to a verse in Jeremiah, chapter 32, verses 9 through 16, um, where we're talking about um, signing and sealing a document, a deed for land, and there's both a sealed copy and an unsealed copy mentioned. So, you know, this was common practice to seal documents, meaning that documents existed, meaning that uh, this was one of the documents that existed, if it's real. Correct. Right. So it doesn't really, it doesn't doesn't really necessarily take... add anything or change anything. Not really. Um, I, and, I... and there's a whole... You know, if you go to to uh, two hundred years later, say uh, at Elephantine Island, mm-hmm. you got a boatload of of uh, Judeans writing on papyrus back and forth and back and forth. So um, everybody knows that they that this was real, and these are real, right? Really real right. things, yes. and and not something that is meta real or or extra real. Right. So yeah. it's, you know, it's sort of at the sensationalist level because it's because it's first temple period documentation. Right. But it doesn't change anything about our understanding of writing or administration no. or, or of personal names. I want to know who Ishmael is and why we're sending things back and forth to him or not sending them. <laughs> <laughs> I think he would like to know that also. Yeah. <laughs> There's an interesting micro story there, which why is all this stuff keeps ending up on my doorstep? And how do I, how do I make it stop? I send it back. Yeah. Don't send it to me because I've got porch thieves in my neighborhood. Exactly. This. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, Okay. So do we have any final thoughts? Um, That was my final thought. I want to know who he was. I I, I think I I would like to know. I think there's more to this story and I'd like to know it. Having to do with sources and methods and uh, sources in particular. And, and there's a, there's a background that we, you know, to me, it's interesting. The, the, The object itself is sort of, interesting it would be kind of nice but the way in which objects generally or not generally uh, specific objects can become intrinsically part of the story 
that is that is interesting to me because it connects potentially antiquity or at least the 1950s when somebody was sitting in Jerusalem going hmm you know how do I cash in on all these on the scroll mania right <laughs> to to the present and an hour you know little blip of blip of 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 uh, public interest and maybe you know continued financial interest in these things mm-hmm. and uh, what is real and what isn't real i was waiting for the the walter benjamin reference <laughs> <laughs> but I knew that was coming yeah. i didn't expect the nihilistic trend uh, <laughs> uh you know vein to be mined but i was fully expecting walter benjamin to come up i had a i had an unexpectedly heavy breakfast so maybe that was <laughs> Maybe that was literally weighing on me. A little too much hot sauce, perhaps. Walter Benjamin rise to the surface. (laughs) Well, let's hope Walter Benjamin or my breakfast doesn't rise to the surface. Thank you very much. Good point. So. All right. All right. Um, (laughs) Do you you remember how to turn it off? I'm getting there. There. Well, I'm not sure this episode has strengthened my grip on reality. But in any case, we'd like to thank Erez Dessel, Community Engagement Coordinator for the Chicago Philharmonic, for our theme music. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, the Papyrus Division of the Michael Scott Paper Company. When you need papyrus, call one of our friendly salespeople for a quote. So to get in touch, leave us a comment, or send us an email at thisweekintheancientneareast, it's all one word, of course, at gmail.com, or send us a postcard at P.O. Box 1177, Boston, Mass., 02134.